Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Fabi from Parity, Derek from Moonbeam, Retail from Akala, and Lucas from Centrifuge. This is a multi-interview episode all about the Polkadot ecosystem. I felt it made sense to get a number of perspectives to really paint the picture of what this ecosystem looks like, especially now, given that the much-anticipated parachain component is about to come online. A quick primer for folks new to the Polkadot project. Polkadot consists of a relay chain, which acts kind of like a hub, with a number of other blockchains that are connected up to it. The relay chain is where the blockchain consensus happens. The connected blockchains are called parachains. And this connection between the relay chain and the parachain is the component that is about to be enabled. In this episode, we talk to the teams who will be working within this new architecture. But before I kick off, I want to tell you a little bit about the ZK Validator. It's a project that I co-founded over a year ago, and I've mentioned it a couple times on the show. The ZKV is currently active on Cosmos, Nier, Polkadot, and Kusama. We will soon also be active on Mina. And as a validator, the ZKV is quite unique. We have a very clear mandate and a singular focus. That is the advocacy and promotion of privacy and zero-knowledge topics on the networks that we validate on. We do this through connecting the ZK community with the folks working on the network. We also run workshops, we put together blog posts and reports, and we're also starting to do a little bit of funding into early stage projects that line up with the ZKV mandate. What also might be interesting for you is we're launching a series of dedicated events focused on privacy on these different networks. For example, we just recently held a near privacy roundtable. There's an upcoming Cosmos Privacy and ZKP showcase happening on March 26th, and we're in the early planning phase for a Polkadot event. The details are still in the works, but we're aiming for late April or early May. We hope to bring together the ZK community as well as new privacy projects that are emerging on the network. If you think your project falls into that category and you want to participate, please email us at events at zkvalidator.com. You'll also be hearing more about this through the Polkadot channels, but do follow at zkvalidator on Twitter to stay in the loop about all of our events. Now, if you want to support the Zero Knowledge Validators initiative, there's a very easy way to do so. As mentioned, the Zero Knowledge Validator is running on a number of POS networks. If you happen to be a token holder on any of those networks, you can always stake to us. And since we're talking about Polkadot in this episode, I do want to highlight that we have five validator nodes there. Find us in the polkadot.js UI and do add all five nodes. This is a pretty cool passive way to support the Zero Knowledge Validator initiative and by extension, the development of Zero Knowledge Proof and Privacy Tech on Polkadot. Now that we got this covered, here is my deep dive into the Polkadot ecosystem. In this week's episode, I speak with four members of the Polkadot ecosystem, Fabi from Parity, Derek from Moonbeam, Retail from Akala, and Lucas from Centrifuge. My goal is to understand what projects are doing in the ecosystem and kind of what it means to be part of it, especially now on the eve of parachains being deployed. Now, I've done a few episodes in the past on Polkadot, what it is, how it's built. Uh, We talked about the Kusama network as well in an earlier episode. So I'm going to add all of those in the show notes. But today I want to kind of figure out a little bit more what's actually going on in Polkadot. 
So first off, I want to welcome Fabi back to the show. Hey, Fabi. Hey, Anna. So Fabi and I used to work together many years ago when I was still at Parody. And actually, Fabi, you were on one of the very early episodes of the podcast. I think this was like end of 2017. I believe it's episode five, something like catching up with a few peeps from Parody. It was recorded like on a retreat like in this cabin in Brandenburg. And it was very, it was a very, very long time ago. So I think it's worth it to share with the audience what you do at Parody. Obviously that's evolved since that episode five, but yeah, what, what do you do at Parody today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Polkadot and Parody, as well as this podcast, I think has come a long way in the, <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, so, so I'm glad I have another opportunity here. Yeah, so I, I joined Parody like four or five years ago. Uh, when when I joined, it was really just a handful of of sweaty developers in the Berlin <laughs> living room, um, and uh, primarily focused on on Ethereum back then. Uh, so we built core infrastructure and tools for for the Ethereum ecosystem, primarily the Parity Ethereum now Open Ethereum client. So that was that was like kind of like the beginning of of my journey with Parity was uh, primarily focused on that. Um, starting like mid 2017 or so, and I think this is also where, where we met. Things became a little bit clearer on Polkadot. So the Polkadot paper was already there, like from like end of 2016 uh, onwards, but like the really like full force Polkadot war really started like mid 2017. And yeah, that's when I was there, and that was during the time of the fundraise, basically that early, early. Per- polka dot period yeah that's right that's right so that, that was like the time when suddenly the word polka dot was like slowly being used more often in the world uh, world ethereum uh, in, within parity um yeah and since then has been a, a like a yeah a pretty wild journey ups and downsides uh, a few <laughs> through, hacks through hacks yeah and uh, bear but, markets Power markets, bull markets, uh, NFTs and ICOs and, and, and DeFi and, and all of that. But yeah, pretty focused on just building what was written in the white paper, plus a lot of extras on the way. So things like Kusama, which you said you had a whole, a whole episode with Nicole on, but also things like Substrate weren't, they're not mentioned in the Polkadot paper, right? Those are all things we kind of like discovered on the way that would be neat to have. So while the white paper is kind of like the guiding uh, document, right, in terms of what we're set out to do. Uh, there's actually a lot of more stuff that we've built on the way. When you first joined Parity, how many people were there? Just over 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're like you're like employee number 11 or number 12 or something? <laughs> something like that. I mean, there's a few people <laughs> that have left since then. So okay. if you look at like lo- most long-standing employees, it, it's probably actually higher up the list. Oh, but wow. yeah. Um, there weren't all, all that many people, but yeah, we, we went through incredible growth since then or like around 150 now. Wow. This is a completely different entity then. Yeah. It's not much to do with, uh, from a like high level organizational point of view with what it was back then. But I think actually in terms of what we're doing, it's the same thing, just a larger machinery and more smart people behind it. But, uh, it's, it's still at its core, we're still doing the same thing. So what are you doing exactly at Parity? What's your role today? 
So I look after what we call ecosystem development. It's a little bit of an umbrella term. Maybe we have to rename that at some point in the future, but it's kind of like what we would traditionally associate with ecosystem development, like growing the ecosystem, supporting the ecosystem, thinking about what kind of stakeholders do you need on, on Polkadot. But it's also things like developer relations, uh, it's uh, our enterprise business, it's our localization strategy. So there's a bunch more things that we kind of like bundle into into that that, uh, that I'm ultimately looking after. And how would you describe sort of maybe this ecosystem and yeah the community that you that you interact with a lot like maybe say a little bit about what it used to be like and what it looks like today. Yeah, it's actually interesting because the Polkadot ecosystem is given that Parity already had a name when we really started talking about Polkadot, there was always a bit of a Polkadot, I wouldn't call it an ecosystem but a community. There were already like People who thought it was cool what we're doing. There were already people who like who would come to meetups and at least hear out what the vision is, kind of thing. But like an ecosystem that started to emerge was really only possible when there was something to something tangible, some code to build some stuff with. Mm. And that started beginning of 2019, roughly, with uh, the first releases of Substrate and us actually going out in the world and like doing workshops with people and starting to do hackathons and. Uh, you know, getting learning materials out there, uh, doing live demos on stages and so on. Like that was really a time where, you know, developers started to get interested and started to use it. We got the first feedback and, and from there on, like an ecosystem emerged. I think people who listen to this podcast for a long time are familiar with Substrate, but maybe you should define it for listeners kind of just catching this episode for the first time. What is that? What, what does that have to do with Polkadot? Yeah, so, so Polkadot, uh, there's many ways to describe it, I think, but I would I would classify it as like a meta infrastructure layer for layer ones, right? So for layer one blockchains uh, that can plug into this uh, meta infrastructure and get kind of like finality as a service, like security and interoperability through that. Now, the question you quickly ask yourself is like, okay, now I have this great meta infrastructure that these blockchains can plug into where are the blockchains, right? Like you better make it really easy to build blockchains that can actually plug into this, right? So substrate- By the way, by meta infrastructure, here you're talking about the existing Polkadot and the relay chain, I guess. Exactly, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Like if I talk specifically about the relay chain and its functionality, it's kind of like this. If you think about Ethereum 1 being infrastructure for dApps, right? Then the relay chain is, is kind of like a, a meta infrastructure for, for something like Ethereum 1. Oh, I right? see, okay. Interesting. But Substrate is not that. Substrate is, like, as I've always understood and kind of how we've talked about it on the show, it's more like a, it's the builder or it's like the thing that you can use to build any blockchain. Yeah, it's essentially a set of tools and libraries that you can use to build blockchains. And if you connect these blockchains to Polkadot, we call them parachains. And parachains is kind of what everybody's waiting for, right? This is the update. You call it an update? Is it an upgrade? What is it? It's a the last stage of a phased rollout. Is okay. what I would call it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. So this is what this is the hot topic. This is what everyone's waiting on. Uh, we went. We started the Polkadot rollout spring last year, and we went through different phases. And we're really now in the very last stage where we, where everyone is just waiting for this parachain functionality, which is really crucial because so far Polkadot is primarily like a, a skeleton chain that just validates and governs itself, mm-hmm. but you cannot actually deploy any additional logic on top of it. 
parachains will enable that, right? Parachains are kind of like it's flipping the switch from like this this skeleton thing to like an actual open developer platform and deploy parachains on on top of and then potentially applications on top of these parachains. Um, and, and then we can actually use all of the tools that we've been building over the last years to to deploy stuff. So yeah, this is it's the last milestone, but it's also the most important one in in, in many ways. Cool. Maybe for the listeners who aren't familiar with parachains and how they actually relate to the relay chain, what is that connection point? For for people who are familiar with like Ethereum and Ethereum two, I think a, a good way to understand it, although there are many many nuances to that, but on a high level, is ultimately Polkadot is also a sharded blockchain protocol, but with the key difference compared to to Ethereum two that. Instead of each shard being like an Ethereum execution environment and each shard looking exactly the same, these shards can look vastly different, right? It could be like a Bitcoin-like chain, UTXO chain. It could be an Ethereum-like smart contract platform. Uh, it could be a completely application-specific chain, or like one chain, one application kind of thing. Uh, so you have significantly more technical freedom in like actually going into uh, this chain and changing it to whatever you need. Um, and then there's a like an economic mechanism on how these uh, spots are allocated, right? It's like ETH2 just launches with like that. Those are the shards, right? Mm-hmm. That's their capabilities. Uh, please deploy on top of them. Polkadot is a little bit more, uh, you know, here's this meta infrastructure. You can actually now start deploying these shards and there's like an economic game on like how, they, how they're allocated. And so in this case, though, each shard is, it's a unique blockchain, actually. It's not an identical data structure. That's right. That being said, they could also be identical, right? If you want to deploy twice the same thing, Polkadot doesn't care about that. Like, let's say you want to horizontally scale your chain, let's, you know, you could deploy the same thing again. Uh, But yeah, obviously the idea always behind parachains is optimization. And uh, you can optimize for a lot of different things. Maybe you optimize for a specific for a specific application or for a specific industry or for a specific problem domain, let's say privacy or scalability, you know, whatever it is, but it's it's the power of Polkadot and the power of Substrate really comes through when you think about what am I optimizing for and how how can I customize my infrastructure to accommodate for that use case. Hmm. So let's think about, like, I, I want to kind of imagine, like on launch, like as, as mentioned, there's going to be kind of the last building block, parachains are going to be enabled. Like there already exists some fully formed projects. We actually are going to be interviewing three after this, but like some are fully formed and are actually live and some are waiting for parachains. But like, do you expect that like you turn this on and day one, you have a (laughs) hundred new parachains? Like how is that going to actually work? Yeah, yeah. So there's 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 going to be some allocation uh, mechanism that I alluded to, but uh, essentially, it's a gradual scale up, right? There's we well, first of all, we want to have some confidence in that the thing that we've built actually works, right? So we don't just want to like let everyone jump in and then hope it doesn't break, but rather like gradually roll it out. Um, but there's also like reasons, like economic reasons and stuff like that, why you kind of like gradually want to allocate this stuff, also as the ecosystem grows. Um, but yeah, so you can imagine it will look. Something like, you know, like one, ch- one slot that becomes available per week. So like over the course of, of two years, right, you would, you could roll out like a hundred parachains, but like at any given time, right, there's going to be some 
uh, slot allocation mechanism going on. So if people are interested in getting a slot, they can uh, they can start playing these games. Do you know how many are going to be offered right off the bat, though? Like, I don't imagine it's going to be one at a time right off the bat. Like, is there going to be like 10 slots and then you add one every Yes. Well, I think those are still decisions that need to be made. Like it's essentially parameterization within the protocol. But as I said, it's going to be gradual. um, Mm -hmm. And it's likely, you know, it's it's first going to be on some test nets. That's already the case. We have parachains on like non-value bearing test nets. And, you know, people are using cross-chain messages and like all that stuff already exists. But the next step would be to bring it on Kusama. And maybe already through like the auctioning process, but maybe also through like a governance mode, like a different mechanisms on how you can actually bring chains on. So we will do that like gradually and as we feel comfortable as things are tested and audited and optimized and all of that. Uh, but on Polkadot, right, like once you pull the trigger and say like, okay, now, um, you know, programmatically these slots are being allocated, then... I don't want to say there's no no way back. There's always a way back, right? You could you could halt it or whatever if, if the community decides so. But ultimately, once you do that, you want to have confidence in you know this thing is going now. So there's going to be a lot of steps before that where we dry things out and and have dry runs and do things in either environments where there's no economic value or at least significantly less economic value than on Polkadot mainnet. I mean, it's extremely exciting, but I'm curious, like how many groups are there in the ecosystem? Like how many teams are even, would even be able to take one of these parachain slots? Yeah. So right now we have, and this is uh, like, we do track it internally, like parity internally quite diligently to know who's there, what are people building and, and, and stuff like that. But it's, it's ever changing and with a very increasingly fast pace, right? Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's sometimes a little bit hard to like fully stay on top of it. Uh, but roughly 300 teams, right? And we start counting as a team if we say, you know, at least two people, a product idea and some funding behind it. So this is not. Those aren't like parody internal projects or, you know, tinkerers or weekend projects or hackathon projects. I mean, there needs to be, if it's just two guys having tried something for two weeks, that it doesn't count to that number, right? But those 300 projects aren't, they aren't all building parachains, right? So like if you, yeah, so a good way to categorize uh, things and, and one we often use is kind of like in three bigger buckets, one being parachains, so teams actually using Substrate to build chains that then will be deployed as parachains on Polkadot. The second category is uh, higher-level applications. So those are teams that build, uh, for example, smart contract applications that are deployed on top of these parachains, right? So you can imagine a lot of these parachains are platform themselves. So maybe there are, you know, EVM platforms or, or, or uh, you know, Rust-based smart contract platforms. And so there's obviously a lot of teams that aren't actually building parachains. They're building applications in the Polkadot ecosystem that's it kind of like one layer uh, on top of that in the, in the tech stack. And the third one is what I would call like component slash tooling slash infrastructure builders. So those are all the people that aren't actually deploying any business logic on top of Polkadot at all, but they're contributing code in the sense of that they're making it easier or more powerful or faster or whatever to, to do stuff in the Polkadot ecosystem. So developer tooling, like node infrastructure, that kind of stuff would fall into the category. Would something like a wallet or a block explorer fall into that category? Yeah, both both of those would be yeah classical examples of, of kind of like component builders. Cool. How are you finding these teams? Like, where do they come from? Do you source them? Do you, 
like 300 seems like a lot to source. How do these teams emerge? Yeah, so I mean, right now they just emerge, right? Like right now there isn't, uh, you don't have to do much right now. There's a lot of like influx. And for us, it's it's also a lot. And just like even, you know, being able to handle that in terms of like who wants stuff from us, what kind of feedback we're getting and, and so on. Um, at the very beginning, it was quite helpful to have a name in the Ethereum space and the Ethereum space, you know, happened to be and still is, right? The place where most of like the, decentralized application builders are so us having had a brand in that and the network in that uh was really helpful so we could just go out and be like hey we've built all this cool stuff for ethereum we've built a new thing it's called substrate maybe you want to try it out right so like we naturally had quite a few people that were following what we're doing that were willing to jump into that and because we knew what kind of limitations ethereum brought because we were the guys that were building building the infrastructure there, we also knew what are the pain points of these people, right? So there was a lot of empathy in in kind of like in our development process uh, from like what kind of pain points they have. Um, so at the beginning, it was a lot from there and like working very dedicatedly with like these like early pioneers that were willing to uh, go onto our platform. But yeah, ever since I'd say like beginning of last year, yeah, it's it, it's really a flying wheel. So like, yeah, that, that was actually a question. Cause like, if you say 300, that's pretty wild. Cause I feel like the last time I checked in on this, it was like 100. So it must be a lot of new projects that have just emerged in like the last few months. Yeah, for sure. Um, like we are profiting, um, I think as the whole space, right. From like an upwards cycle, like narrative around Bitcoin, that's kind of like trickling down into the rest of the industry, but also mm. narratives around DeFi and now NFTs and so on. Like you have representations of all of that in the Polkadot ecosystem, right? So one is like, yeah, we're coming out of the gate with this new tech and it's exciting and it solves people's problems. And then later on top of that, there's also just more people coming in the space, right? And also more people coming in the space that have less of a mental lock-in on like, you know, there's Bitcoin and Ethereum smart contracts, but there's maybe also other ways to do things, right? So for us, it's, you know, it's a function of us doing a good job, I think, but it's also a function of like, you know, th- there's just being a lot of excitement or a lot of new people coming into space. And actually speaking of new projects, I mean, as part of the Zero Knowledge Validator, we actually did a, a workshop with the Parity folks back in the summer, this past summer, 2020. And um, we were looking for privacy projects on Polkadot. And there was a handful of privacy projects, but there was very few zero-knowledge proof-related projects. There was some, there was kind of more of a focus on trusted execution environments when we were looking at it back then. But since then, I mean, we've been tracking it as well, and we've seen an explosion of new zero-knowledge or privacy-related projects. Like, given that this is the zero-knowledge podcast and a lot of our listeners are concerned with this or interested in this topic, like, what would you say if somebody has a zero-knowledge focus how do they even kind of start to interact in the ecosystem like obviously it's awesome to see that there are projects that are doing that but like are there still building blocks missing like how would how would we maybe even as the zero knowledge validator help focus that energy yeah i mean there's there's a lots of lots of ways to to get involved and uh you know because it is so fast moving and you know ever expanding uh kind of dynamics it's sometimes also a bit overwhelming, right? Like you go and it's like, oh, there's all these teams and there's all this tech and like, where should I start? A good way is starting to talk to people that 
are in the ecosystem, right? Start talk to Parity, talk to the Web3 Foundation, maybe talk to folks who are already doing zero knowledge stuff in the ecosystem. They usually have a pretty good understanding of what's going on and what's mm-hmm. missing, right? Uh, at Parity specifically, we're like in this constant mode of like looking what's missing in the ecosystem and what of that should be built by us versus what should be built by others, right? And we're never in the business of competing with our own ecosystem. We always just look at like, Hey, is no one picking this up? Okay, then you know, let, let's do it ourselves, kind of thing. But there are there's pretty great like support infrastructure that you can plug into that you really get f- for free, right? So the grants program that the Web Three Foundation uh, is running is a great source of just non dilutive funding if you want to get started. Um, there's also always a list of like general like areas of interest. I would say sometimes there are even precise RFPs of things that we would like to see that you can pick up. So that's one way. Uh, the other one is the Polkadot Treasury. It's essentially just on-chain DAO that sits on top of Polkadot. And it's a pretty powerful capital deployment mechanism for, for ecosystem participants. And again, a great way to get just non-dilutive dots into mm-hmm. your hands to get started. Um, that's kind of like governed by, by, the, by the community. And the third one is stuff that we are running at Parity. So we specifically want to point out the Builders Program, but there's actually more waste in the act with us to kind of like go beyond that. But they're all centered around technical support, support around architecture, like helping people to actually find the right thing to to build and um, and then find the right way to actually go about it. So you mentioned this earlier in the interview, but like in Substrate, is there already zero knowledge proof functionality built into that? Or is that something that Parity could build? Or is that something that external people should be building? Yeah, so, so the interesting part with Substrate is it depends a little bit on what you call like being built in, right? So Substrate kind of like ships in multiple layers and multiple levels of abstraction. And the thing that Parity ships as and the thing that's in the Parity GitHub repo, there isn't anything native in there that does zero knowledge stuff in that sense. That being said, because it's kind of like this extensible framework, right, there's a lot of repos from ecosystem people out there that do zero knowledge stuff that you can just use, right? All these things are kind of like composable and extensible and uh, like technical freedom um, is is a is kind of like a major design principle in Substrate. Although the thing might not directly ship with like zero knowledge enabled, whatever whatever that means, right? It's not like you're starting from scratch, right? It's there's uh, all of this stuff is open source. All of this stuff is um, ultimately with some limitations compatible with each other, uh, depending on what you're doing. So it's um, you're you're by no means starting starting at zero. And all the stuff that we're supporting heavily, as in like parity, but um, it's the same is true for for the Web three Foundation are the things that are generalizable, right? Those are the things we're really interested in. It's not so much, uh, I mean, it was also cool if people built like specific applications that really solve this problem, right? But it's great if someone builds something on the way that then, you know, enables uh, five, six, seven, eight uh, other applications to be built on top of it. Fabi, thank you so much for giving us this look at the ecosystem from the perspective of parity, maybe a little bit of the history and uh, setting the stage for the following interviews. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Anna. Next up, I'm going to be interviewing folks from three different parachain projects. We're going to be looking at Moonbeam, Akala, and Centrifuge. To start, here's my interview with Derek from Moonbeam. So, hey, Derek. Hey. Welcome to the show. I want to hear a little bit more about Moonbeam and yourself. Maybe you can give our audience a short introduction. 
Sure. Yeah. Happy to do that. So uh, why don't I start with myself? Um, you know, uh, I've been basically building software and technology companies my whole career. So that's, you know, quite some time at this point. That's about 20 years now I've been doing that. And, um, you know, the, I guess the most formative part of my, uh, of my career, the formative experience was this uh, company I started back in 2006 called Fuse. And um, that, you know, that I was there for a long time building that company up. That was a cloud technology company, not a crypto company, actually, just a you know, cloud technology company. And you know, I was there for, I think, 13 years building that company up over time, um, you know, learned quite a lot in that process, met a lot of great people along the way. And, um, you know, a lot of those people actually are with me today at the present, uh, you know, the present venture at PureStake. We started, uh, you know, PureStake in um, uh, the beginning of 2019. And, uh, you know, the, the way I got into crypto was that my, my co-founder from this company, Fuse, left, uh, left to start a crypto project. So that got me, you know, quite interested. You know, he's now the founder and CEO of a project called Algorand, which is based in Boston here. Oh, yeah. Uh, like Super well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, that got me quite interested. You know, you work with someone for, all, for, for a long time and, you know, I was quite interested in what he was up to. And as I started learning more, I said, you know, I, I have to, you know, get into the space and, and kind of do something, uh, do something here as well. So, you know, that led to starting uh, PureStake. And, um, you know, I think our, our vision really, um, even coming into it was that, you know, we're heading into a permanently multi-chain kind of environment uh, in the blockchain space. And in that environment, you know, problems related to cross-chain interoperability are the key ones that are kind of the key challenges to overcome. So with that's kind of the mindset we had, and I think that led us pretty quickly to to Polkadot, right? Um, you know, I think that they share that vision. You know, I think they're kind of making it happen even with their substrate, you know, the substrate technology. And, um, you know, it, it was just a natural fit for us to kind of start working in the Polkadot ecosystem. So, you know, we've been building uh, our project Moonbeam in the Polkadot ecosystem now for for uh, about a year and a half or so. It's uh, it's definitely come a long way in that time, I guess. <laughs> and so the, the company is actually called PureStake. What was PureStake originally planning on doing? Because I guess Moonbeam is sort of the end result of this journey. But where were you starting? Yeah, I mean, well, I think, you know, when you kind of come into crypto, I don't have, um, you know, this long history like most people. So there was a lot of learning that we did, uh, particularly when we started in 2019. I think, um, you know, we started out doing a lot of infrastructure work. Um, that's kind of the way that we um, initially started engaging with networks. So running uh, validators, you know, um, or running actually validators on uh, both Kusama and on Polkadot. Uh, right now. So that's how we just started learning, just kind of, you know, how this technology works. Um, that's definitely kind of gave us something tangible to kind of uh, engage with, like, and, and get involved in the community. Uh, and yeah, so I think that, you know, what, what I guess became clear to us over time was that, you know, while that's interesting to kind of do this work at the infrastructure layer, you know, we saw definitely a much bigger opportunity kind of uh, moving up the stack a bit, right, to mm. build our own, uh, you know, our own blockchain. And yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the need that we saw was that, you know, it became pretty clear to us in Polkadot that, you know, there's a lot of people that want to build on Polkadot, but for some, and for some people, it makes sense to do uh, what we've done and kind of use Substrate to build your own blockchain to become a parachain. But, you know, I would say also, you know, it is a fairly um, serious undertaking to do that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it requires, you know, time, the right expertise, uh, you know, a lot of uh, capital even to, you know, win one of these parachain slots. So we kind of saw that there was definitely going to be a good spot to occupy to provide a developer-oriented platform, like a you know a, a parachain that would be um, a platform that people could deploy DApps to, and uh, kind of in this kind of more traditional smart contract like model that people are used to. And so you know we were definitely gunning you know gunning for that. We thought that would be uh, you know we wanted to be you know one of the teams kind of filling that need. Cool. And so 
what is Moonbeam then? Maybe we should give the audience a sort of a sense for what that, it's a parachain, but what does it actually do? Yeah, so what, what Moonbeam is, is um, it's pretty straightforward, the, the core concept. So basically what we've done is we've done an Ethereum implementation using Substrate. So Substrate is the technology framework that one uses to build parachains and Polkadon. And you know we've in close partnership with Parity. You know we've basically uh, created uh, you know a working Ethereum implementation. Uh, so you know if you're coming from Ethereum, you know we're trying to create this environment that looks and feels and just behaves you know in a very familiar way, and where you can use you know a lot of the existing you know tools that people are used to using uh, from Ethereum. But you know you're you're kind of on Polkadot, right? So you're you get uh, benefits of being on Polkadot. You know, we're adding other features kind of on top of this mm-hmm. kind of core f- Ethereum feature set. So things like on-chain governance and staking, you know, a lot of features that you know, a lot of other um, Polkadot-based projects are, are using. So we kind of see it as, you know, there's this familiar part. There's this part that, you know, allows you to use the things, you know, the, all these tools that you're used to. But then, you know, we can have the opportunity to extend, you know, from that core to take advantage of um, you know, a lot of the, the features and things that are possible on Polkadot. In building this out, did you interface with the Ethereum developers, like the Go team or the Open Ethereum folks, or were you? Would you say like you were just taking the spec and then re-implementing it? Well, I'd say that you know, and and this is you know credit where credit is due is that like Parity themselves had like ha- you know obviously have a lot of expertise in you know building these clients, and you know a lot of these these components were already there, already part of Substrate. Yeah. Uh, in particular, the the EVM implementation was. You know, largely, uh, largely there. I mean, there's definitely evolved and you know um, improved and got more performant, but there was already an existing kind of core EVM uh, implementation uh, that existed when we started, and so that was a great kind of basis to kind of build on. Because really, with that, with that as the core, these other components that were needed to need to be layered on top. So things mm-hmm. like um, you know these Web three RPC endpoints, so things that you know would allow the tools to kind of um, you know communicate um, you know with the node. Um, you know, we were creating a lot of these kind of pieces like around uh, this EVM core that already existed. And um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, th- that obviously helped us quite a bit. Right. So and I would say in general, that's, you know, that's the story that it's kind of a standing on the shoulders of giants kind of situation. Right. So that's not only <laughs> substrate. There's all these, you know, uh, components that, you know, uh, you know, already uh, already created. And um, so that was, uh, you know, that was very fortuitous. So it sounds a little bit like what you've created. I, I kind of I follow you here where like building a parachain out itself could be quite an endeavor, but building a DAP or maybe even like redeploying a DAP would allow for faster deployment and also potentially like more experimentation. How are you thinking about the way you position yourself and your community? Do you want to be a sandbox? Do you want existing Ethereum projects to come over? Like what's your strategy there? Yeah. So I would say that, um, you know, we're definitely seeing different kinds of folks, um, you know, take advantage of Moonbeam and, and kind of engage with us. What I would say is that, you know, for where we're directing a lot of our own energy and kind of our own go-to-market is definitely focused on uh, engaging with existing teams um, that have Ethereum code bases, right? So if you're an existing team, you have an Ethereum code base, you know, you're a potential kind of natural partner, you know, f- uh, for us, because um, you can take that code base and just deploy it to Moonbeam uh, with like little to no changes, and then you'll have an, a Polkadot-based deployment. Mm. Um, so I think that uh, that's kind of um, definitely something that we've been talking to a lot of teams uh, at this point uh, about. And um, yeah, you know, I think that we're at a moment now where people are interested and uh, in this idea of, well, okay, what do you know? What does a multi-chain deployment look like? You know, maybe it is the case that. You know, you know, not I can't serve like all of the users and use cases I want to serve 
from ETH mainnet. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be like a multi-chain deployment of some kind, right? Whether that even be to a layer two or to other chains. And I think that, you know, we're at a moment in time now where people are pretty open to that conversation, uh, you know, due to gas prices, among other things that we were you know, talking about earlier. <laughs> Actually, let's talk about that. I mean, Ethereum, I was just saying this before, like the way that I had played with some DeFi in the summer um, using very small sums, I was kind of able to do it then. At this point, I'm actually not able to do it at all. Like it just doesn't make any sense. I would lose any of the the funds that I have in there on gas fees. I mean, this seems like a pretty massive opportunity for Moonbeam to kind of emerge now. But like, would you say that's one of the primary things that are driving people to reach out to you or like maybe are making so that the reception you're getting is quite open? Like, is this the main reason? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. I, I would say that yes, it is. But in our, you know, the, what we found is that framing kind of the challenge that someone is facing as just one of scalability is generally like not enough on its own. Uh, there's a lot of different like uh, options available if you're just seeking to solve a scalability problem. Mm. Um, you know, or so gas I think fees, well, I guess or, I think or, of or those fees, as right? separate, right? Like scaling, I always think of as like speed. Mm. I, I think they're connected in a way because okay. if you had more throughput, like then like the fees would be lower, basically, right? So the fees are kind of definitely dependent on the at least in the Ethereum model on, on the load that's on the system. Oh, yeah. So I, I mean, I, we see it this way that you know it's kind of a push and a pull. I describe it as sometimes, right? So the the push is you know kind of what I was describing that okay, so we're in this environment or kind of are unable to you know to service you know certain users and use cases well. Um, so we need to, you know, we're just like losing part of our target market, basically, right, that we can't service. Uh, so that's the push. I think the pull that we're seeing, though, is just interest in Polkadot, right? So mm. I think of the other uh, layer one networks that are out there, you know, Polkadot has definitely kind of established itself and I think is, you know, almost maybe separated a little bit from some of the other other folks out there. And, you know, there's quite a lot of activity going on now. And, you know, a lot of that activity is kind of new asset creation, like these new projects that are developing. So I think for a lot of the the teams we're working with, you know, particularly ones in the the DeFi sector, you know, they want to be kind of a first mover in this new ecosystem so that they can get these new assets, you know, into their protocols, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that be a DEX or a lending borrowing protocol, you know, these kinds of things. So that's that's kind of the pull, right? So I think that that makes for a, you know, a good kind of prospect, if you want to call it that, like that for us, right, is that, you know, they're recognizing that they need to do something to address these kind of users and use cases they can't address, but they're also interested in, in Polkadot, interested in expanding uh, to Polkadot. And I would mention that, you know, almost all the people we work with are not moving, right? So this is a yeah, yeah. big misconception, I think, where people say... You're not poking you know, this is kind them of, from Ethereum, I guess. Right, that's right. It's like, this is yeah. the old ETH killer narrative, which kind of makes no sense from my perspective. It's it's much more that, you know, they'll maintain like their, their Ethereum deployment and service, you know, the users and use cases that, you know, make sense to service there. But then they're expanding and kind of getting at these other, you know, users, use cases and assets like on Polkadot. So it's additive, you know, and it's and they, you know, plan on having multiple deployments at the same time. Mm. Uh, so that's almost universally the case, um, you know, for the, the projects we're working with. Are you worried, though, like, given that it is an EVM implementation, and, and I realize like it's going to be a very new network, there won't be too much activity on it right off the, off the bat, or like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you want to see it scale up, but like, it will have less activity than Ethereum has. But would you not run into the same kind of problems that Ethereum has today? So I would say that we have intentionally copied as much as we can from the Ethereum model for compatibility. So like, you know, whenever we've come to like forks in the road, we've said, okay, we could do A, which might be faster. We could do B, which will maximize compatibility. So we are definitely, you know, always choosing the compatibility path because we want to really be the 
the kind of lowest friction, you know, way, you know, for people to deploy on Polkadot and for to, you know, to redeploy from, from Ethereum. So that does mean that, like, ultimately we have the same gas model and that with enough load, like, you would see increases in, like, in gas prices. Mm. Now, I think that being said, there will be quite a bit of, like, new block space that's available. And, um, you know, that that is going to take, like, some amount of uh, time, basically. Yeah. Uh, given, you know, we have two deployments, too, right? We have a, a deployment on Kusama as well as a deployment on, on Moonbeam. And we can already see that, you know, potentially there might be some use cases that might be served just fine from uh, from Kusama. That's already happening on Kusama now. Nice. Where you see things like NFT activity and other things happening there. I just, just, I want to dig on that because, so you have an implementation. Is it Moonbeam on Kusama and Moonbeam on Polkadot? Or is it a different term on Kusama. Yeah, we're, we're calling that network, uh, the Kusama network Moon River. Okay. So there's Moon River is our is the name of our Kusama deployment, and Moonbeam is the name of our Polkadot deployment. Got it. And, uh, you know, the way Polkadot works is, uh, and how Parity works is, you know, they do things first on Kusama, so the, our Moon River network will be launching first, right? Nice. As, uh, you know, as uh, the parachain auction start on Kusama. Do you plan on building bridges between Moon River and Moonbeam, or Moonbeam and, like, ETH mainnet? Yeah, so we do have a number of different uh, bridging options that uh, we're making available. Uh, one of them is just a point-to-point bridge connecting, um, you know, for example, Moonbeam back to uh, ETH mainnet. Currently, that's connecting kind of our, our testnet. Uh, back to, we have bridge instances connecting back to both Coven and Rinkby. Got it. And, um, you know, but, you know, that's kind of the one that we're maintaining and that we're going to be behind. But there are a number of other ones, too, because, you know, that's kind of the beauty of Polkadot, where, you know, we can leverage kind of the cross-chain integrations that are part of Polkadot to take advantage of other bridging efforts. So, uh, for example, there's the uh, Snowfork team that's building Snowbridge. Um, you know, that's one that will provide another kind of route to, you know, moving assets uh, to and from uh, Moonbeam from Ethereum. Mm. And then, you know, we have other integrations underway, such as with uh, with Ren and with a, a newer project called Axelar that will provide, you know, other ways that we can move assets between uh, Ethereum and Moonbeam. Cool. I'm curious, what do you think about, because, I, I, you know, there's this concept of public utility parachains. It's kind of common good parachains. Mm-hmm. Moonbeam is not that, right? Moonbeam is a standalone. It, it is a project in itself, and it will be using funds in order to secure a parachain slot. But do you think that these public utility parachains will be useful to Moonbeam? Or do you think that there could even be like a competitor public utility parachain? For some of the ideas I've heard of for these public utility parachains, I mean, they certainly will be useful. So, for example, I know that there's one planned uh, that would help support uh, stable coins, like making sure that there's stable coins that um, are available on, on Polkadot uh, that any parachain can use. So that's obviously something that's a benefit to all of the teams that are building on uh, on Polkadot. So uh, same thing with the bridges, right? So the Snowfork bridge I, I mentioned also uh, falls into that category where okay, it's just cool. something that I think all the teams need. Yeah. So I think, the, you know, the, the things that are being earmarked for, you know, for that public good use are something that I, I gen- you know, like those examples, you know, I think they'll be generally useful for anyone uh, this building. I know that there's like Canvas and Ink. That's also kind of a smart contract platform, but it's not EVM. It's not Solidity. But do you see that as a competitor? I mean, I realize it's all, everyone's in the same ecosystem and it's quite small. So everyone's mostly friends, but like, would people have to make a choice kind of in when they start to think about building a dApp there? Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, the decision tree kind of goes like this. So if you're going to build on Polkadot, I think the first decision you have to make is, do I use Substrate to build a parachain? Or am I going to work with an existing 
you know, parachain team? Am I going to build on top of a parachain? Uh, so that is definitely the most important first decision. And basically, depending on which path you go down, it actually will will kind of color a lot of what the rest of the execution looks like. So, you know, if you're going to build a parachain, then that's, you know, substrate and mm -hmm. rust and, uh, you know, bidding on a parachain slot and, and all of this. If you're going to go down the path of, you know, working with the parachain, you know, then, you know, that's, you know, there's us, there's, you know, other teams that are, uh, that are also, um, you know, building smart contract um, parachains. And I would say that, you know, one of the key um, choices there would be, um, you know, working with someone like us, that's, you know, the kind of Ethereum style implementation using the Ethereum dev tool chain, or, you know, using Inc, which is, you know, I would say the other main option. That's the, you know, parity created kind of more Rust based a smart contracting language. Um, what I'd say there is that there's obviously quite a bit of thought and experience that's gone into Inc, and it, it definitely um, you know serves its purpose. Um, I think that if you're starting from scratch, you know that's probably one set of conditions that might you know might weigh into that decision versus if you already have an existing code base, right? So mm -hmm. uh, what I described before is if you know your project already has a code base, I think working with like an, an, an EVM compatible chain is going to make a lot of sense, right? Because you can leverage the one code base. You know, multiple times versus having to recreate something. Um, so. What about the tooling and all of the things that exist on Ethereum mainnet today? Like, does that come along with it or do you need to redeploy it? Who would redeploy it? And actually, like, even a more basic level one is like, will there be like a MetaMask for Moonbeam? Would it be MetaMask or would it be <laughs> like your own version of it? Yeah, so it, it is. So definitely it is the case that... Um, you know, given this kind of uh, always choosing for compatibility, as I mentioned before, that that allows us to basically like the existing tools to be usable with Moonbeam just by changing kind of where they're connecting to. So that is just MetaMask. And, you know, some users will be familiar with this from working with, for example, something like XDAI, right, where you basically like add a new network. And if you add Moonbeam as a network, then it's the same MetaMask experience. You can still, you know, use MetaMask to send funds or to add ERC-20s and this kind of thing. Uh, all that is, you know, a similar experience. What I'd say is that tools, like Remix, MetaMask, um, you know, things like Truffle, Hardhat, I mean, all these tools are kind of fall into that same bucket where they can they kind of work out of the box as is. You just have to repoint them basically at, at Moonbeam. Mm -hmm. I would say that there's another class of services, which are things like, um, you know, Infura, the graph. There's a kind of, you know, where it's more of a service versus just software. Those are compatible with Moonbeam, but, you know, you don't get them for free in a way, right? Because mm -hmm. Infura is currently... You know, service it's providing service for for accessing Ethereum. So, but there is where we've seen. You know, there's other projects that are starting up that are providing these kinds of services. And in fact, even uh, you know some of the folks that are established on Ethereum, I think a lot of them are you know also pursuing like multi-chain strategies at this point. So, yeah, you know, they again are kind of natural partners for us. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about the parachain slots. Now we've kind of mentioned it a couple times through our interview already. This idea that you have. A relay chain, which is sort of the consensus of Polkadot, and there's these parachains that connect to it. Each parachain sort of takes a parachain slot, and there is some sort of fee or loan. I mean, maybe you, you can describe this better, but there's some sort of amount of money that needs to be put up in order to secure one of those parachain slots. Can you tell me a little bit about that process from the perspective of a parachain? Sure. So the main auction process, which is the main mechanism by which these parachain slots are going to be allocated, has not launched yet. So, but I can give you kind of um, kind of our view on it, like you know, from where we are now. So, uh, I guess the most important point is that, that there is this kind of auction-based mechanism that's going to be used. So, what that means is that you know slots will become available. Uh, you know, Polkadot has a finite capacity, so there's a finite set of slots that you know, are possible um, uh, or that are supported. 
And those slots will be made available one at a time. And as those slots become available, there'll be an auction where different teams, you know, ourselves and other teams can basically put bids up uh, to occupy those slots. And basically the the team that has the winning bid is the team that would then occupy the slot. Mm -hmm. And it it is for a finite period. So I think it's, you can choose uh, six, 12, 18 or 24 months uh, on Polkadot. That's the, that's the plan. It may be shorter on Kusama. And uh, basically the idea is that whatever uh, the amount is that you bid, and you bid that in the, the relay chain native asset, so that would be a dot in the case of Polkadot, that lets you occupy the slot if you have the winning bid, but those dot become kind of locked for the duration of uh, your occupancy. So if you are kind of bidding for two years, you put up a bunch of dots, you win, you win the auction, then those dots become kind of locked, uh, you know, underneath your parachain in a way, right? Yeah. And so you still have them, but I guess you lose the opportunity cost of them. You can't use them for anything That's else. Right. Uh, you're going to see prices potentially fluctuate and you'll just have to sit by and be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But you obviously are getting this valuable kind of service of, um, you know, basically you get like access to the relay chain and, you know, can access part of the capacity of the validators on the, on the relay chain to provide security for your, for, you know, for your parachain. Cool. How did you go about, I mean, I know that you, it's not done yet, but I, I assume the plan is to put dots forward for this slot. Where do they come from in your case? Yeah, I think what, um, I mean, obviously one place they can come from is that you just have them and you put them up. And, you know, we don't know exactly what the clearing price for these auctions are going to be, but it's going to be high, right? So Mm -hmm. almost all the teams that I know of, including ourselves, um, that are kind of, you know, bootstrapping themselves into these slots for the first time are using this uh, mechanism called a crowd loan. So what a crowd loan is, is basically a way that you can, you know, kind of obtain the, the dot that's needed to, you know, put a bid up from other people. And the idea is that, you know, as a team, you kind of put an offer together, right? You say, okay, you know, for this amount of our platform tokens, you know, uh, we request basically uh, to borrow like your, you know, your dot. And, um, you know, the, those people that contribute towards a crowd loan will get their dot back. But then there are, you know, the, it's up to the team. And, you know, the most common model would be that there's some portion of the platform tokens of the parachain that would then be kind of distributed to those folks that were contributors, you know, over the course of the slot occupancy. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I think that almost all the teams I've talked to are, are pursuing that model because there's a way that you can kind of bootstrap yourself without you know, need to have, you know, some huge number of dot already. Would any team do like half half? Like would some would you put some up or are you planning on actually doing full crowd loan? Uh, we plan on doing uh, full, but yeah, I think there probably is, some, you know, some, I mean, you know, people, people may just have, have some, right? I mean, and I think it's, uh, if you have them, like, I mean, you know, the, you know, it might not make sense to do the crowd loan at all, but, um, hmm. but yeah, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, the dot itself has gone up in, in price a lot. So, I mean, I think these things are not going to necessarily be that, that, that cheap. And so if, if a participant wanted to actually like access this or support Moonbeam getting that slot, they themselves could like, like if they are a dot holder, they could loan through this crowd loan mechanism, they could actually loan their dots, they would be locked. In return, they would get some sort of distribution on your network. Have you already fielded the question to your community? Like, do you know what the interest is there? Do you have some some expectation on like even how big that is? Uh, yeah, and, and I would say that you know our, our plans are kind of evolving as well. I mean, we're mostly focused on our Moon River, this first deployment that's coming up, where uh, yeah. we will be pursuing this strategy. And uh, I mean, there seems to be quite a bit of interest, right? So, uh, yeah, so we're definitely seeing interest from the community. And I mean, I, we're pretty focused right now on kind of just uh, this Moon River launch, where we do have that's kind of a little bit of our community-led experiment, where cool. we're actually um, 
uh, you know, going to be distributing, uh, you know, a large portion of the uh, the platform tokens. I should say that our, the Moonbeam Foundation is going to be distributing a, a large portion of the the tokens on the Moon River network via this crownload mechanism. So, kind of using it as a token distribution mechanism. Neat. And this is all on Kusama, so you'd have to have Kusama right. tokens to participate. That's right. That's um, right. I have sort of one last question about kind of how you interact with the relay chain as a parachain. Like, you are relying on the validators in the relay chain. For your consensus, but like, do you have validators as well on these networks? Yeah, the the key role that like um, that we have are, is uh, this role of collator. So you know, in Polkadot's design, there's kind of this split responsibility, right? So as a parachain, you have these collator nodes that are supporting the parachain that are responsible for block production. So those collators are are um, you know producing blocks, and then they kind of um, offer them up to the relay chain validators, and the relay chain validators are then uh, verifying the contents of those blocks and finalizing them. So there's kind of this, you know, uh, very tightly coordinated effort, but it is kind of a split responsibility. And um, yeah, that's just part of the, you know, the Polkadot design, um, you know, to, to kind of have this shared responsibility, if you will. I guess it almost sounds like a mini, like validator set, but validator set light, because they're not doing the full validation. I guess they're not staking, actually. They're just acting as this collator role. That's true. Although we, you know, in and this is kind of up to the different parachain teams. So we will have staking like on our chain that will be used to select like who it is that's producing, that's performing this collation role. Got it. So it is kind of like it, it will resemble kind of the regular staking mechanics that you find uh, on the relay chain. Cool. Well, Derek, want to say a big thank you for coming on the show and helping us to understand Moonbeam and also what it looks like from your perspective becoming a parachain on Polkadot. No, well, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. And good luck with the next few months as they, you know, as these things really start to come online. I think a lot of people will be watching closely. Thank you. So welcome to the show, Ritao. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here, Anna. Uh, Ritao, you are the co-founder of the Akala Project. Um, I want to hear a little bit about maybe when you started in the Polkadot ecosystem and when Akala was born. Well, actually, we started to look at substrate or we have like uh, interested in the substrate project I mean, back in uh, almost like more than two years ago when substrate was still uh, in its early form. Right. So uh, one of our co-founder, Brian, was actually one of the prominent contributor outside parity to the substrate course. So we were already familiar with substrate before almost like two years ago. And one and a half years ago, uh, we decided that, hey, we think this is super promising. Uh, we should start a venture and build a specialized blockchain using substrate. And that's how we get started. Cool. And your company, though, it was named something else before, right? Yeah. What was that original name? Well, the initial name is, uh, we call it Lamina. And it still have this name. It's like actually our entity we are operating from, right? So you can Got think it. of a, yeah, think about of like an organization that will be working with a number of projects and archive one of our projects. The name behind Lamina is that we are nerds and all the co-founders are pretty much nerds. We are into physics and stuff. And this one term called Lamina flow, like we water was flowing in a particular angle. You can see it's like almost frictionless. And we envision that uh, capital or information of value should be f- flowing in a frictionless way on blockchain as well, and hence the name Lamina. So frictionless flow is what you meant with that. Yeah. But like the project that we're going to basically be talking about is Akala. When was Akala first thought of? Well, actually, when we started our venture, we think um, no matter what we do, 
we got to um, work on something that's finance related. Because back then, DeFi is still not that hot, but we already see the promising future of um, decentralized finance able to able to bring. And we attended the very, very first hackathon uh, in China. Uh, we were actually living in New Zealand. But back then, there was the very first uh, hackathon in China. Uh, Gavin was there mm. as well. Uh, and we happened to meet the other uh, co-founder of Akala Network, Fu Yao. And we've been through a number of like, we call it dating or like the value alignment stuff. And ultimately we think, oh, we are super click. Um, we are same shot of nerds. Um, we are here for the long term and we should start to work on this project together. And that's how, when Akala was conceived. It's actually what I think conceived back in the very first public hackathon uh, on Polkadot. Wow, that's such a great origin story. So like Akala is DeFi. But I don't exactly understand what that means. So you will be a parachain on the Polkadot network, but what is a DeFi parachain exactly? Let me start from the bigger picture, like what new possibility uh, Polkadot enables uh, for developers, right? So when we were building stuff on decentralized blockchain network, we are looking like what possibility, what capability the base layer is able to provide. Um, If you look at Bitcoin, there's almost no much you can program, you can program mm-hmm. the Bitcoin network to transfer asset, and that's pretty much it. And then if you look at Ethereum, it is great. It got us this to this stage. It provides new capability for developers, such as like you can deploy application now. You can pretty much decide what, what what's going to happen within your application and deploy it on Ethereum. So that's like new capability, new possibility enabled by Ethereum compared to Bitcoin. And if we look at Polkadot, it actually enables new possibility for developer to design the blockchain in a fully customized way. And that's where we call it the DeFi chain. That's where the concept is uh, conceived. Uh, we have the ability to take the substrate, fully customize, fine-tune for one particular use case. And in our cases, we fine-tune it for financial applications. So we have a stablecoin built-in, uh, we have a decentralized exchange built-in, we have a staking DRT product built-in, and we're able to customize like Oracle transaction, we're able to customize like gas fee payments, uh, essentially have the ability to customize down to the core level and to provide much friendlier user experience for the for the participant, for the for the user, for the traders. So I think that's cool. what Arcala is in a nutshell. I mean, when you talk about this customization, that makes sense that you were able to create these building blocks. But do you also, like, are you able to optimize for DeFi? Or is it more just like you can create the Lego within one parachain? Well, I think it's more of like we are actually able to optimize um, stuff for okay. DeFi. So, I mean, I'm going to take a number of examples, like maybe two examples. One, if we look at a generic computation platform, for example, Ethereum, all transactions is being treated equally, right? So Oracle transaction liable for gas fee payment. And when the network is congested, the Oracle transaction were actually competing for yeah. all the other uh, transactions out there. So what we do with Archive they we think Oracle transaction is like very important, it should be parallelized and it shouldn't be liable for the typical gas cost um, because like the Oracle provider is actually contributing to the network. We should be incentivized, we should be rewarding them instead of like charging them gas fee. So that's why we took this like customizability and we'll say that Oracle transaction or Akala, it's gonna be free. Once you get whitelisted and you are an Oracle contributor, you can submit price fit on the blockchain for free. The second special um, capability of Arcala is that the traders or the user of the network is able to pay gas fee in any form of tokens. 
One of the concepts I think is quite fascinating is that if you have DAI on Ethereum and if you want to transfer DAI, you got to pay ETH as gas fee. Well, that's mm-hmm. okay for, for, for everyone that's already on DeFi who are getting used to this concept. But for someone that's outside the blockchain space, they find it very, very hard to understand. So on Alcala, we look at that problem and then we say that how can we make it better? So we make it that if you transfer AUSD, which is stable coin on Alcala, mm-hmm. um, you can pay AUSD as gas fee. And we think the fee itself is just like the bare minimum to prevent the network being attacked, being congested. And that's like should be as easy as possible for users to transact, not like a barrier to prevent mm-hmm. the user from transacting. So those are like the new stuff we enabled uh, in the DeFi space. Would you have a project like, I don't know, Balancer or Synthetic, something that's like currently built on top of Ethereum, would you build them on top of Akala or would you build them into Akala? Well, I... I think there's like a number of ways to integrate within Akala. Okay. Um, and you actually mentioned like two possibilities. So one is that if a project is like deep into the core of a network, for example, a bridge, um, like we work with Ren, um, Ren Bitcoin. Um, so they would like to build a bridge from Akala to their virtual machine. Mm-hmm. So we, they actually got to deploy a module within Akala. And that's one way to integrate with Akala. Well, it's actually harder that way because your code needs to be reviewed. There should mm-hmm. be an audit every time with the deploy. But on top of that, a developer can also deploy Solidity smart contract and reprogram what we created. So, um, I already mentioned that we have a stable coin, we have a decentralized exchange, we have staking directed protocol. All those primitive that we built is exposed to the EVM machine as well. So think about an, a solid developer. When they deploy on Akala, they have access to those primitive they already built there. It's there for them to use. So I think there's a number of ways. Depends on what, what project, what kind of nature of the project. There's a number of ways for, for deployment. Does the parachain Akala also have its own EVM? Or is are you talking about the EVM of another parachain or another chain in general? No, we actually have the EVM pallet built in. So upon launch, Akala, we have smart contract capability. Um, it is more of like a way that we see how, network, how a network could be specialized. So in our cases, the Akala network was specialized to have this financial primitive that we coded and we think is so important so we build it into the core. But we also think all these financial primitive can be also very useful if they could be reprogrammed. And that's why we have this smart contract capability support. The other special thing about Arcala is that if you look at EVM, uh, we actually like we look at the whole solidity space as like there's like two components like right? there's the EVM um, the, the virtual machine as like the backend and there's also like MetaMask the way that you interact with the blockchain um, the RPC core as the front end one unique aspect of Arcala is that we actually optimize the EVM as the backend on the front end we still relay on the Polkadot signing mechanism we still relay on the Polkadot.js extension uh, we think it's like unique customized solution fine-tuned to provide seamless experience for existing Polkadot.js users. So they are interacting with EVM, but they, they didn't realize. Okay. They are using the Polkadot.js signer. They are navigating using the same wallet. Crazy. So like your Polkadot.js, this sort of extension that would be living in your browser would also allow you to interact with not only maybe the Akala parachain, but things that are built on top of it. Exactly. We we develop a translation service, a translation layer mm. on the fly. So from the front-end user's point of view, they are interacting with Polkadot. But from the Solidity developer point of view, they are coding as like if they were coding on Ethereum. 
what kind of projects do you already have built on or building on Akala or maybe planned to build on Akala? Because I realize like, you know, you will be a parachain once parachains are enabled, which is very, very soon. But like, yeah, what, what kind of projects have already moved over that we might know? Well, there's like a number of projects we already announced. So um, RAMVM, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially a bridge that connecting to the RAMVM, is already been building with us for a long time. Amplifus, which is a Ethereum project, um, they will implement, they will open a branch of their implementation on Akala. Um, there's actually a quite a number of projects. Um, I think we have a full pipeline that with a lot of interest from either like new project or existing Ethereum project looking to open branch on Polkadot. There's quite a number of them. So I think not only that, I would like also to look at that once the project goes live, once the Polkadot um, space goes live, what sort of new application mm-hmm. that can be created on top of Akala or on top of other platform on Polkadot, for example, Moonbeam, that is like only possible to do on Polkadot, but not on Ethereum. And those are the, the most exciting things. Totally. We have a number of projects that might fit into that category, but we're going to announce it when, when we're ready. Got it. And I, mean, I don't know if people already know what they are yet. They might still need to kind of emerge and be seen, and then people will understand that. I think that idea of finding like the unique quality of the L1 is super neat. Like This is what I like to learn about as well. Maybe you can give some hint at that, though. Like, what kind of new paradigms do you think are enabled by the Polkadot setup? Well, I just think about, like, we don't actually consider the Polkadot a layer one anymore. We consider it layer zero. Oh, yes, because yes. Because and, and, yeah, it enable project like us able to build, like, a full pledge blockchain with sovereignty, um, with the ability to customize to its core. So I think... Uh, if you look at that paradigm, and then if you look at that, hey, Polkadot is actually like a United Nation, and we are like sovereign country living on top of Polkadot. There's a number of um, interesting stuff that might happen. For example, a country might have diplomatic relationship with another country mm-hmm. expressed in the smart contract point of view. So let's say the transition between this country and the other country might be subsidized, might be, uh, or might even like a mutual beneficial free transaction between this country. And there might be hub country, there might be like specialized country. Well, I mean, those is going to be super, super fun. One, once um, the Polkadot um, ecosystem developed to its like mature status. Yeah. And there's something I can't stop dreaming about. I mean, every day <laughs> I was just like, when we can get project go live and then we can, we can start this like diplomatic relationship with, um, with so all the neat. other projects. Do you think there could also mm-hmm. be war between them? Well, I think we will see a period of prosperity before we see war. Okay. And I would like to, uh, yeah, I would like to hint one. Uh, use case that I think is super, super attractive. And that's somehow related to the podcast name as well, uh, as well so ZK. Mm-hmm. So think about Akala, right? So we are able to create a set of financial primitives such as stablecoin. And the stablecoin itself, we think Akala is able to circulate to other projects. That's the nature of how Polkadot works, like composability between different projects. Think about if there's a project that's working as like a privacy shot, focus on privacy. And then they cooperate with Akala or they integrate with Akala in a trustless way that the stablecoin once teleported into their shard would become like a Zcash version of stablecoin. Interesting. Those is almost impossible to do with other layer one, but it's become like a reality. We can gaps in our, in, in our hand when Polkadot goes live. And that's the beauty of like have your ability to customize a network to its core, cool. right? So those is like, when you ask me like what sort of new application I'll be looking at, I will be super excited to look at like uh, this specialized network plus that specialized network 
equal to something even more special. Neat. And you just mentioned ZK privacy. Mm-hmm. I am curious, like, there's currently a lot of work going on. It's Tarun Guillermo and Alex who recently published this paper on private AMMs, what you'd actually need, like why that's a lot harder than it seems and what you'd actually need to make that happen. Are you, as a Kala, also looking to implement any of this privacy on the base chain of itself? Or are you only looking to like do kind of bridging to privacy projects? Well, I think in the short term, our focus remain very focused is that we want to make sure that what we built, the, the core primitive, is being utilized to its full potential. Mm-hmm. So let's say that in the short term, we would be unlikely to sit for like adding a privacy layer into our color because we know there's like expertise area that other teams working on. So there's a number, already a number of projects working on that sector. They are creating a privacy shot. So the more we look at it is that how the ecosystem as a collective moving along together by expressing where your most expertise area is. And in that way, you can see that why we think Polkadot is a United Nation and we're better off if we move along and do what we are doing best, right? So if we look at the privacy sector, there's already a number of projects um, that's working on that. And if we're able to transfer AAUSD into that privacy shot, I don't know about the super fancy math, but they do, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they might not be as experienced as what we do about like getting the, the stable coin to a stable a peg or something like that. So we all contribute our special ability and then ultimately it's better off for the whole ecosystem. Cool. What's the sovereign wealth fund? This is something that is kind of championed by Akala. Is this something that you're providing? What is that exactly? Well, I think this is something that we, it's echo what I mentioned earlier about how we see parachain and parachain are interacting. It's like more of like diplomatic relationships. So um, we all know that for a parachain to have a slot, um, they're going to be some stock staked in order to secure that slot, right? So uh, we come up with these uh, economic models to say that we have six years of subsidize to make sure there's incentive for dot holder to stake their dot and, and supporting Alcala to secure slots. But we don't want to like forever um, doing that because like that creates some sort of uncertainty. How can we make sure this is so important in Pogoda? How can we make sure our project will always have a slot? And we start to look at how Perico um, accure their fee and buy back to, to give essentially give dividend to token holder. And we think about why can we combine those, right? Uh, combine th- th- those two together and then say that instead of like the protocol to buy back token and spend a fee, why do not, don't we just like acquire uh, the protocol fee in a fund and use that fund to continue to secure the project slot um, for the project. So I think in a nutshell, it tends to be like that. You are renting the house and then you are like working really hard. And at some stage you have enough capital to buy the house so you can be operating from the house forever. So I think that's the first phase we we, we think we need to have this um, sovereign um, wealth fund. It's like to represent that this collective of dots is actually owned by the protocol itself. And it's mm-hmm. owned um, ultimately by the token holders, and it's at at the command of the token holders. It's very similar to an to an to a physical uh, sovereign wealth fund, and it's for the common good of this um this project. Interesting. You've already described a lot of like upcoming futures and exciting potential like diplomatic things, but if you were to give like a really long shot view on Polkadot and Akala, mm-hmm. what do you where do you where would you, and maybe this is hard to do, but where would you like to see yourself in like four or five years? Let me extend on the Sovereign Wealth Funds um, idea and see. Um, so let's say that Alcala would like to acquire a, a set of dots so it can have its slots. 
but Akala will be still operating. There's still like operation surplus from the protocol. And once you have enough dots, what comes after, right? So all those um, surplus income can be re redeployed. How do we re re redeploy those? And they will start to imagine that at that point, maybe there's some other project. They are also going through this project auction. And then by then, the Akala could, as like as a nation, support that project because like there's mutual beneficial um, relationship between two projects. I'm just trying to see like some wild imagination here. Let's say there's going to be an Oracle chain, and nothing it, it does nothing but Oracle, and mm -hmm. it needs a project slot. As Akala, we also would like to depend on a re reputable Oracle source, and. Maybe we're able to negotiate, say, hey, if we help you and bomb your project, maybe you give us free um, Oracle access as long as our fund supporting you. That's very, very seamless stuff happening in the reality. How can we move that to the blockchain? So that's something I can already imagine. Like it becomes like a diplomatic relationship with economic benefit for both of the, of the project. So the decentralized solving works fund not only can hold dots, it might hold maybe some Oracle token to make sure he enable access to the other project. Got it. Yeah, and then further down into the path of like the final evolution of Polkadot, we might be able to see the ultimate vision of like Polkadot within Polkadot. So maybe there's like tiny nation that's open up like <laughs> like within Akala, and like there's like a relay chain of um, of Polkadot, and then the Akala itself might become a relay chain, yet still connected to Polkadot, and then it might have its own power chain. Who knows? Yeah. Like if you ask me, five year maybe, and that like infinite scalable, right? <laughs> Yeah, I remember I have actually had, I think a while back I had Rob on the show and we talked about this like relay chains of relay chains. I think it was with him where it was like this sort of these layers of sub relay chains that would act like it, it would change a bit the security model as you went down, but it would potentially open up even more parachain slots or sub parachain slots. Yeah. But um, it does seem like one step at a time at this point. <laughs> First, the parachains need to be deployed. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, just before I sign off, are you going to be a parachain on both Kusama and Polkadot as a Kala, or do you have two different projects? We actually have like two different names, right? So okay. the, um, we call it, we're definitely going live on Kusama first because that's where yeah. the Canary Network and play comes in. So we're going to call our deployment on Kusama Kurura. And it has a logo. It looks like a burr as well. So burr and burr, best friend. Okay. And then we're going <laughs> to, once it's stabilized on Kusama, then we're going to deploy the Arkala network on Polkadot. So you get, they actually like two distinctive um, brand names. They might have different community down further down into the road. And we are trying to follow the similar approach of like Kusama and Polkadot as well. So the Kurua network might have wider, like more aggressive governance. So things that's crazy might not get passed uh, on, on Akala's governance, might get passed on, on Kurua. Mm. So those is like we, how we foresee um, the future Snowy. It's very valuable for an important project to have a canary network with value totally. so they can test stuff out. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, good luck with everything, Ritao. And thanks so much for this interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Anna. Hey, Lucas, welcome back to the show. Hello, Anna. Thanks for having me. So, Lucas, you've already been on the show. I think it was last year we did a full episode on Centrifuge and the way that that project kind of came about, how it's constructed, what it's for. I'll definitely add a link in the show notes if anyone wants to kind of go deep on the project. But with today's episode, I wanted to bring you back on, have maybe a little bit of an update on what you're doing, 
and talk kind of more in the context of the polka dot ecosystem and like being a parachain, all of this, this is what I want to touch on. But for our audience who didn't hear your episode yet, let's do a quick intro to what Centrifuge is and to you. Yeah, so Centrifuge is focused on bringing real-world assets to DeFi. So what that means is a business, an individual that has like some sort of asset out there that exists in the real world, such as a house or some revenue or uh, like a license, for example, or some commodities, can use that as collateral, use that within DeFi, right? Because so what you see today is we have this like these crypto-native assets and there's this explosion of financial products that are being built, right? You can leverage your ETH, you can short sell it, you can build these complicated products, but this is only really accessible to users who already have these crypto assets. But that's not the majority of people. This is most people, right? They, they actually don't have crypto assets yet. They have a house or a business or US dollars, something like that. And they want to use the same financial ecosystem, right? Like with this, this system that we're building, we're building this not just to, to sort of help our own bubble. Like ideally we can uh, expand that. And sort of this real world is more than a thousand times bigger than um, what we have in crypto today. If you think about the total value locked in DeFi, uh, JP Morgan, this, the large US bank, they have about 3,000 times more in assets, right? And so Centrifuge is all about how do we bridge this? And um, what we do specifically in the product side is we allow these users to create pools of these different real-world assets that can then be used as um, as a collateral base, as a, like an investment for other DeFi protocols. So for example, you can use your uh, music streaming royalty uh, revenue streams as collateral in Maker, or you can use, by sort of investing in these pools, you can invest in real estate um, and get exposure through that, but completely settled on chain, all of it done sort of um, today on Ethereum. And so there's sort of two, maybe touching touching a bit on the on Polkadot and why I'm talking about this now. Um, we have, with all of these different real-world assets, we have a huge amount of data that we need to deal with and we need more scalability than what um, Ethereum can give us today. And so actually for a long time ago, we started building on Substrate, the framework that uh, Polkadot is built on and went live with our own uh, proof-of-stake chain in, um, in March last year. And so sort of been using both a combination of Ethereum, DeFi and Ethereum, uh, where we do some of our stuff, and then substrate-based proof-of-stake chain that uh, we are looking at connecting to Polkadot as parachains go live. I remember when we spoke last year, you were very much kind of centered around these kind of invoices, the IOU invoice setup. Is that still the core of it, or would you say it's expanded? Um, so, I mean, already at the time, we were thinking of, well, like, what is an asset? And of course, like invoices are one of the assets, the ones that we mm -hmm. started with. Um, but we have been we have been expanding it to sort of any kind of non fungible real world assets, right? So for us, like any any asset that is exists out there that can have an owner, um, we allow you to represent as an NFT on chain to sort of then start interacting with on chain through transferring this NFT. And so I've made a few examples: uh, music streaming invoices, for example, or freight shipping invoices are some of the assets we work with, but but also real estate, farmland a few other asset classes. All right. So the next question is actually about that polka dot question and being a parachain. You were one of the like earlier projects building on substrate, building in the ecosystem. And I guess the plan was always to connect in. 
are you going to be one of these first projects that are like on testnet on Kusama already securing a parachain slot, or is this something you're still sort of evaluating? So we have a, we have a proof of stake chain that's fundamentally the same as Polkadot, right? Like when in substrate gives you the option to launch a network with uh, the same consensus mechanism. And so that's what we started with. And so in a way, like we've been te- not just testing, we've been actually running this network in production. And um, so like we started this decision to build a substrate was made over, yeah, like almost two years ago. Um, and yeah. so at the time that there's no, not a very clear timeline on when, uh, parachains would actually go live on Polkadot. Polkadot wasn't live yet. Kusama wasn't live yet. So we said, okay, we need to have a strategy. So we're actually not going to just be stuck waiting for parachains to go live. Um, and, and we've always treated our network as like, okay, this is an independent network. But of course the promise of parachains is extremely interesting because, uh, we pay several percent in, in inflation per year to our token holders to secure the network. Um, and if we are able to secure a parachain slot at a cost that is less than that, with a comparable or probably maybe even probably by numbers, actually a, a much bigger network security. Like validator pool, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, validator pool, value at stake, right? This is very interesting. And I actually think this is often forgot, not really talked about by people, but the amount of coordination and the amount of work it takes to run a proof of stake network is yeah. quite significant. And I'm super happy with the validators that we have. We have, I think, 32 active validators at the moment with like several waiting to join the set. So we're like growing this nice. quite well, but like even that, right, is like a, a community, a, an effort that you need to run. And so as a project to like divide our attention and sort of think about running this network, um, that's a very big cost. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of how we think about justifying the cost for a parachain. Of course, whether we're going to be one of the first ones or not, I think unlike other Polkadot-based projects for us, it's not delaying our launch. So yeah. maybe we can, maybe we're not going to be as uh, desperate to bid on one of the first slots because I expect them, like looking at how overhyped this market is right now, uh, meaning the dot market and, and all of this parachain loan offerings and projects going on, we're going to make sure we're not going to overpay for that, right? Got it. Um, Because I think these first few slots, they'll look at it more as a marketing expense than uh, actually like paying for your security. And that's what we want to avoid. Yeah, that actually, that does put you in a very different category because you're live and you're not necessarily dependent on this consensus mechanism. You can just kind of wait and see and hold off and let let the network launch, settle almost, figure out itself and then see where the opportunity to link in is. Yeah. Would you have the plan to exist on Kusama and Polkadot, or would you just probably lock into one of these? Like, as a parachain, I guess, can you choose? You're standalone, so, like, I'm, trying to, I'm actually trying to figure that out. Like, do you have to lock into Polkadot, or can you actually just have, like, one parachain that just decides at some point which relay chain is theirs? So... Uh, one of the that parachains or that substrate gives you is the idea that you can hot swap your consensus so yeah. mechanism. So as a running chain, you can decide to go from proof of stake to proof of authority to to being part of, being a parachain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like this is going to be ready when the first parachains launch, and so likely we won't be able to make use of that. And so the thing we can do. Um, instead is actually to just do a hard fork, basically. And that's what it would look like um, if we were to launch before the hot swap consensus 
And the hot swapping of consensus is fully implemented, production ready, and, and sort of compatible with Polkadot. That would be something like, is that a substrate module that would need to be completed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's work on the consensus layer and sort of how this is abstracted that needs to happen. Got it. And so you could do it, but that you might also be waiting for that substrate module, I guess, to be completed because it might uh, be even smoother or what? Maybe. I think unlikely though. I think we're going to be going for one of the very early slots and, okay. and not, not wait with that. Um, the downside is you have a hard fork, meaning like a, it's not as smooth of a transition and a bit of extra coordination, but who knows how long this is going to take. So <laughs> rather not bet on that. But going back to that earlier question of like Kusama or Polkadot relay chain, I guess when you say it's a swappable consensus, you can swap it in for one or the other, right? You could go from one to the other. That should, that in theory, should be possible. Okay. What is the like current thinking on your part? Like, would you want to be a Kusama parachain, or would you rather be a Polkadot parachain? I guess the consensus, the value in Polkadot is higher, so that sort of suggests that the security is higher. I think we will want to have sort of this gold standard, or or like a extremely high reliability, high um, quality. Uh, network security that Polkadot will have, where I expect um, Kusama to be slightly less stable, slightly uh, cheaper and faster. We haven't really made a final decision on whether we're going to go for Kusama and Polkadot or just Polkadot. The main reason is that you are splitting up liquidity. You're, you're sort of setting setting up like the, twice the governance overhead because you now have two systems to run, two parachains to run, right? Like two slots to pay yeah. for. And, and all of that is, again, thinking about like distraction. Um, it is a bit of a distraction. So we might, what we might do is we might try out on Kusama, create like a, a, a test net on Kusama, but with the price of Kusama today, it's almost <laughs> not feasible to use it for testing anymore. Um, yeah. So yeah, we'll have to see how it works out. I wonder if Kusama needs to create like another canary for itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At some point, though, you have to stop creating, creating new tokens. But uh, are you working with some existing DeFi projects that we might already know from the Ethereum ecosystem? Like, are you are there any sort of collaborations that that you can maybe share? So, what our goal is, right, to to bring these create liquidity for these real world assets and integrate them into any protocol that has need for liquidity. And there have been two partnerships that we've been focused on. Um, actually, we started very early with MakerDAO, um, and MakerDAO is in sort of the final phases of doing the technical integration where um, our, what we call asset originators that bring these assets on chain, can use MakerDAO as a source to to borrow. The second DeFi protocol we're working with is Aave, who we're looking to basically create a market with where if you deposit DAI into this market, you can get exposure to all sorts of different real-world assets. And on the flip side, Sort of all of our different pools can be used as collateral to borrow DAI against, right? And so this, I really, our goal is that now to bring right real estate or invoices into um, a protocol like Aave and Maker to allow them to diversify their collateral base, and for the asset originators actually to have a competitive source of liquidity and be able to to arbitrage Maker for Aave and move money around, like bring bring in external investors and sort of create some liquidity in this market. And so, yeah, that's, that's what we've been working on. Are you creating a unique bridge to do that? 
since you're a substrate chain, you're not on ERC20, so you like you have to somehow connect to it. Yeah, so we launched a trusted bridge that we developed together with Chainsafe in May last year. So there's a bridge from Ethereum, from Centrifuge to Ethereum that allows you to bridge these assets and sort of interact with the DeFi ecosystem on Ethereum. And um, that bridge actually was jointly developed with um, Celo and um, Aragon uh, for bridging sort of other chains to Ethereum. Likely sort of, and that is actually one of the big benefits that Polkadot has is that with the trustless like client that they're building, the bridge model that they'll be able to offer is actually well, the security of it is is extremely attractive, right? And yeah. so that that will make it uh, much more interesting, and will make it very attractive for us to be able to sort of retire this this bridge that today relies on um, on a set of our validators to basically sign messages and verify it, mm. and replace it with this fully trustless bridge. Uh, would you use one of the existing parachain bridge projects, like the Snowfork, or these? I mean, this has come up in the previous ones. Yeah, the one I'm talking about is Snowfork. Okay. We've been working very closely with them. Share, we share some people on the team as well. Last question I have for you has to do with zero-knowledge proofs on Polkadot. Mm-hmm. Centrifuge is known as being sort of a ZK-focused project. We didn't talk about it at all so far, but like, are you still using zero-knowledge proofs? Is this still like in the... like? Is it already implemented or is this sort of like a, a to-do or... Or have you given up? <laughs> no, we have definitely haven't given up. I can okay. <clears throat> maybe I can say like why privacy and why zero knowledge matters to us is like obviously DeFi today like is fully transparent and somehow people don't seem to care too much about like all of their financial uh, transactions being in the public. And I mean, if you start looking on Etherscan at your at um, at your friends' addresses and you start following the money around, it's actually quite interesting what you can find out, right? And that's fine for most people. It isn't fine for a business, right? Like if I yeah. if I'm starting to put my all of my invoices into the clear, well, then like I'm going to tell my competition like where I buy stuff, what I buy, how much, wh- how often, and all of that information. Obviously, is like my competitive advantage, and so I, I don't want to want to do that. So that's why we've been for a very from a very early point in time been focusing on privacy. We ultimately decided to abandon what we've been doing on Ethereum just because. There's plenty of activity with um, ZK Rollup and a few others that are actually leveraging the built-in curves in Ethereum, but I don't think they're long-term that's a good investment for us to sort of focus on this, in my opinion, outdated technology. There's way more interesting privacy-focused stuff happening outside of Ethereum. Mm. And that is actually one thing that we really like with Substrate and Polkadot is that it gives you an insane amount of flexibility about what you can put into your runtime. And so one of the things we want to put into our runtime that runs our chain is cryptographic primitives that are much better, much more recent than what you have on Ethereum. And so um, to to enable these uh, our asset originators to have more privacy as they're borrowing money, as they're sort of originating these assets. So yeah, that's uh, something that we'll, we're still working on. Um, so we've been working, prototyping some stuff on the substrate side, but um, cool. um, it's going to take a while. But I mean... There are now also a few other projects that are actually like working, bringing zero knowledge proof stuff into Substrate and Polkadot. We just see this boom of like ZK rollups, privacy tech, like at attempts at private AMMs. Um, what do you what do you make of that? Do you feel like that community like is it becoming more vibrant from where you're sitting since you were one of the first? Yeah, I mean definitely. Like the amount of people that understand the topic and have been building and it has been growing quite steadily. 
Um, and a lot of people are excited about like zero knowledge for not just privacy, but also scalability reasons. And I think that's, yeah, that is, there's, there's a lot happening. I think my challenge with Polkadot is that it, the parachains are still not live yet. And so a lot of this innovations really just on the, in theory or on paper, yeah, you see some test nets and some stuff, but I'm really hoping to see what will actually work and what will, what will pick up, um, steam as parachains go live. Cool. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, it's good to be back. And catching us up. I hope we get to have another interview in, I don't know, a few months or a year and find out more about what's going on in the centrifuge world. When we think, you think uh, when parachains will be live? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it happens before then. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yes. All right. Cool. All right. See you have later. Have a good one. I want to say thank you to all of the interviewees for taking the time to share their insights here. I'd also love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about this episode? What topics should I potentially cover next? Be sure to subscribe to the show, maybe share our podcast, leave some comments or ratings, catch us on Twitter, or join the conversation over on Telegram. I've added links to all of these in the show notes. So thanks again to the interviewees and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.